Let's go ahead and gather in together here and make our way to our seats, grab some cake and some coffee. I mean, I don't have to grab either of those if you don't want to, but that might be nice. Hey, big thank you again for everybody who had a part in the Parsonage uh, open house party. That was, uh, that was so fun, and uh, it was uh, a real joy, and... Um, yeah, it was just really good. And so just got a few last little things to work on. Um, Nathan and Joe were busy working on the list. Our final, um, our final inspection, our first final inspection was done on Monday. And there were, what, 10 items, Nathan? Um, about eight of which we knew would um, cause some problems or cause a fail, if you want to put it that way. Just because the snow load piled up so high, we can't get steps installed where there need to be steps. Um, so there's a few things like that. And I think only two of the things on the list were surprises. But, um, but uh, all the safety issues now are taken care of. And uh, we're, we're waiting on a few other things. And we should have our occupancy permit by the time that the Penningtons are ready to move in. And so we'll let you know a little bit more about that um, uh, when time gets a little closer. I'm going to slide back here. So I have Marguerite on a 45-degree angle right here. See, if she gets outside of 45, I can't see her in my periphery, and I start wondering about Marguerite, you know, like what's <laughs> happening over there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got to watch my back, you know? <laughs> so, Daniel, do you mind getting the doors right there and over there? Thank you. Okay. Uh, any questions about parsonage stuff before we kind of move on from that? No? Okay. No, uh, there was some misunderstanding there. We thought there would be another final inspection tomorrow. Um, what was said was is that we could have our final as early as uh, Monday, but that didn't mean that it was scheduled. And so there was just some misunderstanding there. Um, and so uh, we can reschedule it for whenever and uh, hopefully get that occupancy permit. So, yeah. Other questions? Any other questions about that? Excellent. Well, thank you. Like I said, thank you again for all those who had a part in the party. It was, a, it was a just really wonderful and uh, enjoyable. And so if you missed that, then you missed out. So, but I think everybody that was here was there. So, there you go. Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. We had noted earlier that this passage was the second of what we call the servant songs. Um, I'm not 100% sure why they're called songs, servant songs. They are poems. Um, Isaiah writes in a beautiful form of poetry, and chapter 40 through 66 is essentially one unbroken poem. And there are several points in that section of 40 through 66, and so you know, the book of Isaiah has roughly three sections, um, and 
they're not equally sized. <laughs> you have uh, chapters 1 through 36, I'm sorry, 1 through 35, and then you have like 36, uh, 37 through 39, and then 40 through 66. So there's a bunch of prophecy in the first half, and then you've got this little historical interlude, and then you've got a bunch of prophecy in the second half. Most of the prophecy in the first half is prophetic words, not all of it, but most of it for um, times that would be immediately applicable to um, Isaiah's audience, or in the short-term future after that. Then when we get into 40 through 66, what we start seeing is this broad historical sweep. Um, To make matters even a little bit more confusing, Isaiah tends to kind of skip around a little bit historically. He can be talking about something that's right here and now, and then he can jump ahead to something that's a few hundred years into the future, and then he can skip ahead to something that's the time of Christ, and then skip even farther ahead to ahead of us, okay? Something deep into the future. Uh, Even for us as readers, it's into the future. And pulling apart what is what can be really challenging. To this point, I haven't really tried to um, un unstrand the rope, as it were. But to understand this particular passage, we do need to say, okay, we think, you know, historically, this is when these events are going to occur, as that'll help us understand it a little bit better. Um, I will say, full disclosure, right at the very start, that I'm going to interpret this passage through a certain grid. Um, For those of you who are aware of it, it's called dispensationalism. Okay, um, I'm a dispensationalist, and I will interpret this passage accordingly. There are other Christians who are not dispensationalists, and that's okay. <laughs> uh, they will interpret these passages a little bit differently. And again, um, that's, that's fine. There are other passages they have to explain. There's other passages we have to explain. All that to say, this interpretation is... Um, you know, uh, it's held in the sense of good Christians can disagree with this, the precise timing of it, okay? Um, but I'm not going to stop and say, okay, other Christians will take it here, other Christians will take it there. Um, if you want to run that down, I'm happy to point you to some commentaries that will explore a whole gamut of... of um, interpretations, okay? So before uh, we get too far along here, let's pick up our reading in verse 7 of chapter 49. Remember, this is uh, in chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, the servant of the Lord is speaking directly. In our first servant song, the Lord is talking about the servant. And in 1 through 6, The servant himself is talking. And the Lord then sort of breaks through in verse 6. And he says of his servant, It's too light a thing that my servant 
should only raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And he, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God says, this king, this servant that's coming, this servant that's coming is going to have worldwide dominion. Okay? Now, the Lord is, is then going to break in with several statements. Okay? And what proceeds here on out is a description of God's furthering this purpose. So look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord. Now go all the way down to verse 14. Now it's actually people's turn to talk. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. And then the Lord breaks back in. Can a woman forget her nursing child? We get to uh, verse 22, thus says the Lord. And we get down then again to chapter 50, verse 1, thus says the Lord. And what you can see here is now a string of oracles of the Lord relating to what he's just talked about with this great servant. This great servant is going to come and, and take universal reign, and now God is going to start talking about how he will affect that. Okay? How am I going to make that happen? And he's got all these thus says the Lord statements behind that. Okay? That's sort of the lay of the land. Let's look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness appear, they shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of uh, uh, Syene. Um, that, that's, a, that's an unknown place, by the way. In fact, in some manuscripts, it's Arnim, I believe. Um, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Let's stop right there. And I realize, so verse 7 tells us of the mission of Jesus now, or the mission of Jesus when he was on the earth, now, and then immediately upon his return. Verses 8 and following, 8 through 13, tell us about the mission of Jesus immediately after he returns. Okay, So, Jesus came, he was despised, he was rejected by his own people. That's verse 7. 
the first half of it. However, he's coming again. And when he comes again, nations and kings and princes will prostrate themselves before the Holy One of Israel. In verse 8, it says, In a time of favor I have answered, and in a day of salvation I have helped you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. And we're going to come back to this, but for now, just understand, we've been reading through our Old Testaments, and what we learned is that the people of Israel, the tribes, were given certain land placements in Israel, in, the, in Canaan. For a very short time, they possessed them, and then they were lost. They didn't obey the Lord, and they were lost. For another very short time, during the reign of Solomon, they were possessed. But then, immediately after Solomon passed away and Rehoboam ruled, they were lost again. Well, the Lord, it says in verse 8, it says that he is coming to establish the land and to apportion those desolate heritages. So after the Lord returns... After this servant returns, he's coming back to do something for his people and put them back into the land that he previously promised them. Okay? So let's work our way kind of there. Okay? Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of of rulers. Right here, Isaiah is predicting that when the servant of the Lord comes, he will be utterly despised, utterly hated. We're told that he he came to his own in John 1, and his own did not receive him. We're told that the people cried out for Barabbas to be delivered instead of for Jesus. They said, let Jesus be crucified. His blood be on our heads. Almost from the word go, Jesus was under attack from his people. Do you remember one of the very first, it wasn't just from the big and mighty rulers. Do you remember early in the book of Luke, Jesus goes to a synagogue and he opens this book, this book of Isaiah. And he says, he he opens it to Isaiah and he says, this day this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people go, wow, that is great. What a, what a wonderful speaker. What a marvelous man. He hears these compliments and he says, I tell you, I tell you something. When Elijah was walking on the earth and he went and visited the widow of Zarephath, she's a Gentile. She's a Gentile. And I tell you, many Jewish widows Many Jewish women died of starvation, died of thirst, but not this Gentile. And they raised up, they picked him up, they railroaded him out of the synagogue, they took him to a cliff, and they were going to throw him over the cliff and kill him. And it says that Jesus just passed through their midst because his time wasn't ready yet. That's early in his ministry. That's probably within the first year of his preaching. People are starting to take attempts on his life. 
the nation abhorred him. In fact, to this day, if you were to look up the person Jesus of Nazareth in a Jewish religious encyclopedia, what you would find is a, is a diatribe of Jewish opinion that says that Jesus was, as a fact, the child of an illicit affair between Mary and a Roman soldier, and that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. Therefore, he can't be the Messiah because he broke the Sabbath. They're still hung up on the Sabbath thing. They despise him. They hate him. They, they don't talk about him. If you were to go to New York City and find some Orthodox Jews and try to talk to them about the Lord, you would see hatred and vindictiveness and anger rise up in them. He is abhorred by his own nation. It says that he is the servant of rulers. And what Isaiah is getting at, and just so, just so we kind of see what's happening, Isaiah is, how many years has it been since Christ was crucified? You know, at least 2,000 years, you know? And so for 2,000 years, what Gentile rulers have been trying to do with Jesus is not worship Jesus, but use Jesus. That's what we see over and over again in our nation is rulers trying to co-opt Jesus rather than worship him. Would you guys like to hear an example of what I'm talking about? Recently, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, purchased billboards all across our country in states where abortion has been outlawed, advertising that you can come to California and get an abortion. And do you know what he does? He quotes Jesus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Never mind that in this case, the neighbor is killing a child in its mother's womb. What a neighborly thing to do. Do you see how, what he's doing? He's co-opting the words of Jesus. He's using the words of Jesus for his own sinful ends. Now, that's an extreme example, but if you want, I can list many Republican attempts to co-opt the words of Jesus with no desire whatsoever to come under his reign. That happens all the time. If you want to know, I am quite bipartisan in my politics. I don't trust any of them, okay? Oh, you're a Republican? Are you a politician? Okay, that's all I needed to know. You're a Democrat? Are you a politician? Okay, that's all I need to know. I don't trust any of them, all right? All right, I digress. Um, right here, the servant of rulers, the, the idea of the, this phrase, the servant of rulers, is that rulers the world over until this king comes back again, are going to try to use him, okay? Uh, they're going to try to co-opt him. But, but, he is coming back. He is absolutely coming back. He's riding into our earth. And when that happens, when he comes back, kings shall see and arise, 
princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. The idea here, why, why is it, why, when we see this picture of kings on their feet and then kings on their bellies, what, what's going on there? Are they having a hard time making up their mind? No, the idea here is that the Lord, because of the Lord who is faithful, has chosen you. When the Lord says, stand up, what are the kings going to do? They're going to stand up. And when the Lord says, down, they're going to sit, they're going to prostrate themselves down. The Lord will come with absolute control over the hearts of these people. Nobody, not even kings, not even the highest of kings, will dare challenge his authority. And he will come with such great might and power and displays of might and, uh, what's the word, miraculous displays. He will come with vindication, we're told in the book of Revelation. And when he does this, when he does this, all the nations will worship. All the nations will prostrate themselves or stand up. They will do his bidding rather than attempting to twist Jesus into doing theirs. It's a total reversal. Okay? Verse 8, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Okay, again, we talked about this before. Jesus came, his people, his own people hated him, his own people crucified him. Jesus was raised, and ever since, the kings of the earth have tried to use Jesus for their own sinful purposes. When Jesus comes back to reign, all the world's leaders will fall prostrate at his feet or stand up and do as he says, and he has a mission. And one of his missions as the great returning king is to restore the land of Israel to its original designation. God made a promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12 that his people would inherit the land. He made the same promise to Isaac. He made the same promise to Jacob. He made the same promise to Moses and to Joshua that his people would inherit the land. In fact, when you read the book of Joshua, the second half of the book, you get all these very specific markers, these very specific land designations. You will live here. You will live there. This tribe will live over here. And Jesus made a promise, and this promise remains yet to be completely fulfilled. And so when he returns and sets up his reign, he will make good on that promise and bring his people, it says right here, to the apportion of the desolate heritages. Okay? Uh, the tribe of Asher, for example. They're not living in the designated area right now, but one day they will. And Jesus will restore those. He will say to the prisoners, come out. Those in darkness, those who are often hiding, he says, appear. Then there is going to be, according to verse 9b forward, there will be a great migration of Jewish people 
to the Holy Land. And just like God guided his people in the wilderness, gave them manna along the way, protected them from the heat, didn't allow their shoes to wear out, gave them water to drink, so Jesus, during this great remigration into Israel, is going to pave the way for his people and allow them to get where they need to be. Let's read, it says, it says right here, they shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. So as they're coming in on the ways, the roads, they're going to find enough food on their way in. Things that were bare before are actually going to be the places they get sustenance. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. This is the great shepherd who leads his sheep beside still waters. This is the great um, Exodus God who brought his people along the path into the promised land, so there will be this great relocation, remigration of people. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. The king of ages is going to pave the way for these people to come in on paved roads, on easy travel back to their allotted places. Behold, these shall come from afar. Now, think of all the places where you can find Jewish people in our world. Think of all the places you can find them in Russia. You can find them in China. Lots of Jewish people in China. You can find them in Africa. There's all sorts of um, uh, enclaves of Jewish people in Africa. Argentina has a large Jewish population as does New York City, which is probably the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Jerusalem. I think Argentina is second. I know Argentina has a big group of Jewish refugees that came over from World War II and have just stayed. I'm fairly certain that Australia also has a large Jewish population. Um, and then just about everywhere you go in the United States, there will be synagogues, there will be Jewish people, there is a great scattering of Jewish people all over the world. And there are a few places where they are, where Jewish people have sort of con uh, concentrated through the years. They've been pushed along to different places all through their time. And God says, despite this great diaspora of my people across the planet, they're going to return from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. My Bible has a note. It says number two. Where's my second footnote on verse 12? Yes, right here. Uh, it says that Aswan is another name, which is in another manuscript. Um, commentators are flummoxed by what Isaiah says here. Because nobody has ever heard of the land Syin or of the land Aswan. <laughs> and either Isaiah is referring to, like if I were to say, 
he's going to gather them from Timbuktu. Does anybody know what I'm describing? I just remember I had a book when I was a kid from Timbuktu to Kalamazoo to Kalamazoo and back. Long, long way, long, long way, long way down the track. You guys know this book? Oh, I remember this book. I read it to my kids. I, I, I don't have the actual book. I just get on my phone and read it to my kids. At any rate, it's possible that, it's possible that he's referring to some place that only he knows about, or it's possible that he's using a word like Timbuktu. Is, is there a city called Timbuktu? I, I don't... Let's... Okay, there is. It's possible that he's using a fictional word like... Kind of like, here's the idea. It doesn't matter where they are in the world. Whether they be from the north, the west, the east, the south, or in some unknown land that you cannot possibly imagine. How could a reader in Hezekiah's day have understood where Mexico is? How could they have understood that? Well, now there's Jewish people in Mexico. Okay? And so it's possible that Isaiah means that, that from anywhere you can imagine in the world, I will gather them. Okay? Now, how many of you, the whole time I've been talking, have been asking yourself, when exactly is this going to happen? How many of you have been thinking that? Okay, a few of you. Well, look, I've been saving that surprise to the end. Okay? If you like to write down cross-references, you need to write down two. Okay? Zechariah, chapters 12 through 14, and Revelation 20. In fact, let's turn to Zechariah 12. Okay? Zechariah is very close to the back of your Bible. So turn to Zechariah. Malachi is the next book. So it's the second to last book of your Old Testament. Okay? Let's look at chapter Zechariah chapter 12. Let's just kind of pick our way through this very quickly. He says, The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. And then he's going to describe an event in the future. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. At some point in the end times, there's going to be a great battle against Jerusalem. Jewish people are going to be in the city. They're going to be essentially defenseless. But look at verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Verse 7, And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. 
On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day will be like David. Now, why is it? Why is the Lord suddenly protecting these people? Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on him, whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimmon in the place of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and so forth. So in the end times, there's coming an event where Jews will be gathered to Jerusalem. There will be a great military attempt on the city. And at that point, God will give them a great revival, a great returning. And they'll realize all these thousands of years when they thought Jesus was the bastard son of Mary and a Roman soldier, they will mourn. And they will say, woe is us. Here was our own, and we pierced him. It was written right there in our scriptures, and we never saw it. And they will mourn, and they will be given grace and salvation, and the Lord will fight for Jerusalem and uphold it. And then Jesus will return and bring in his millennial kingdom. He will reign a thousand years from this city that he has preserved. That's Revelation 20. And he will gather his people from across the world, and he will, according to Isaiah 49, put them on their appointed places. God will make them, make him a covenant for them. He remembers the covenant that he swore to them. And Jesus will replace them one day, these people that for so long have hated and despised Jesus will see him for what he is. And they'll repent. And there will be a great work of evangelism among the Jewish people. And then God will put believing Jews in Jesus onto their appointed properties where they can live for a thousand years. It's amazing. Now, we're out of time. <laughs> so let's pray. But um, as, we, as we read Isaiah 49, it's important that we do get to other passages of Scripture so that we can see how other writers sort of filled this out. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our time here this morning. We thank you for our Savior, and we're thankful that it wasn't enough for you to return your own people, but that you wanted the nations to come and bow at his feet. And so we do. We bow at his feet, and we, we pray that our Lord Jesus would return soon, that he would save his people and that he would bring the vindication and the righteousness that he will uh, issue forth when he reigns. But we await that day with great anticipation, and we pray that it would happen soon. In Jesus' name, amen.